0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to this the brand new season of my podcast. I can't believe that we managed to skip along through 100 Episodes, Actually, 102, I think, when we work in the conclusion and the the question-a-thon. Hopefully, you'll see that Paul and I have endeavoured to keep the style and the substance of the love letter. But we've broadened the scope. This is about the history of the world. Before we get started, though, I want to say again big thanks to everyone who helps and supports the making of this free podcast by signing up to my Patreon site, For the history and comment, and my personal philosophy on life, Uh, to join, go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. You won't regret it. Okay, time to get started. As before, travelling through time and space, this time around the whole world. Recorder, microphone, action. Mm -hmm. 100 moments, stepping stones through history, pivotal events in our past, piecing together a picture of the world we know today, at a time when it's ever more important to at least try and understand what has gone before, so that we might better protect our future. This is my love letter to the world.
1: Hi Neil, in this first episode you're setting out your stall for the new series Why did you think it was important to kick things off in this way?
0: I suppose I've got a couple of answers to that really Paul For a start I feel very proud and pleased with the way that the love letter to the British Isles turned out I didn't really know what it would be when we began it a couple of years ago We were just finding our way But once we had gone right through 100 episodes plus I felt there was a a completeness to it And I felt that we had In a very idiosyncratic and personal way Told a never before told story Of the British Isles uh, And specifically my affection My love for for certain places and and events Within that long story And because I was so pleased with it I felt it was fitting in a way that the the love letter to the British Isles just deserved a pause for thought before leaping straight into the love letter to the world I just wanted a little airspace I suppose, a palate cleanse maybe, between the two so that rather than it, the, the, there being a blurred boundary between them, where one bled into the other, I just wanted to make it clear that we had completed something and now we were gathering ourselves to begin something new. So I wanted that gap and and also I said there was more than one answer to the question. I feel it's important to say that the the love letter to the world is different and not just because of the not just because it's got that broader scope, but you know, the love letter to the British Isles was very much about places, specific locations that people can visit, places that will that will always be there. Well, I would hope they'll always be there. And while well, the style and the and the intent of the love letter to the world is as before, because it's personal and idiosyncratic, and hopefully it's suffused with emotion and an understanding of why I feel the way I do about certain stories, but this is about events. It's about moments. So it is it is that little bit different. You might say that although there are places within the story of the world that you can go and visit the moments are, are moments they're, they're ethereal, fleeting and gone and can only be revisited in memory But in any event I'm very excited about getting this, getting this going and I feel that as we go along it will encourage anyone listening not just to accept my hundred moments but to find their own because everyone should have their understanding, their own understanding of the world around us.
1: Do you think people might think you're being a bit grand trying to tell the story of the world?
0: It's a bit, I tell you what, it's a red rag to a bull, isn't it, when you say you're going to tell the story of the world in a (laughs) hundred moments. You know, right away I can hear people quite justifiably saying, you know, looking through the contents, as it were, and saying, I can't believe he's claiming to tell a story of the world and he hasn't mentioned this or that or him or her. It's a grand endeavour, but really it comes from a a place of my wanting to lay out my own understanding of how we got from 5,000 years ago, which is to say that the first writing, writing history is all about the written word, letters, documents, books and all the rest of it. I suppose it's, it's important always to understand that this is my story of the world. These are my moments and I don't claim that they are definitive at all. It's just I, all my life, I, I have had a, a dream, I suppose, of of wanting to be able to stand up and tell the story of the world in an hour or ten minutes or whatever, uh, like a party trick. And in doing that, you have to distill from the, the vastness, from the totality that is the history of the world, you have to cherry-pick. And I think I've cherry-picked the moments that explain what I understand about the world. But I'll say right up front, right at the beginning, if I have a dream for this, it's that other people will be inspired to collate uh, and to realize their own moments and come up with their own understanding of how we got here. Because with every passing day, really, I understand more and more that history is personal. It's also a narrative. You can't tell. There will never be a definitive history of the world. When you get right down to it, it's just about telling stories that hopefully connect to one another directly or obliquely and culminate in some sort of understanding, however briefly held, to understand how we got here.
1: I know it's central to your Patreon site, the idea of how history collides with and informs the present day. Is it important in this podcast too?
0: It's important to me. I don't, I don't expect that everyone has the same need. But I came to history really for a reason. I think when I was very young, probably even before I knew what, about history or, or knew there was such a subject, it just fascinated me how my family had happened. I mostly grew up in Dumfries, down in southwest Scotland. It's not where I was born, but my family moved there when I was about six. So I, my memories before that are pretty hazy. Uh, and I used to think, why, why, why are we here? <laughs> and I don't mean in that existential philosophy way, I mean literally, why are we in Dumfries, <laughs> of all places? And why does my dad do what he does to bring money into the house? And why does my mum do what she does? And that, that made me curious about my grandparents. You know, because I thought, well... It must be something to do with what happened when they were children, my mum and dad. It must be to do with their upbringing that that has led them to this point. It was just that curiosity about why we were in the house we were in, why my dad had the job that he had, why I had the relatives that, that we went to visit sometimes. And I suppose unknowingly I was interested in history at that point because history has to be personal at some level. And I came to it out of a, of a desire to, to understand things. You know, my, my dad told me when I was a very little boy that my mum's my mum and dad were both dead by the time I was born, so I never knew them. But my, my dad's mum and dad were still around, elderly. I mean, they were in their 70s when I was born. They lived in a flat in Glasgow with my Aunt Margaret, and we used to go and visit them. And, and I knew that my grandpa, because my dad had told me, I knew my that grandpa had survived the First World War... Later I found out that my mum's my dad had also survived the First World War and I found that very fascinating because we studied the First World War at school and as well as being something about the Western Front and the trenches and millions of men and billions of bullets and barbed wire and, and all the rest of the grand spectacle that was the Great War, the First World War I always knew underlying that that it was about my own family that I owned the First World War in a sense because I was born from people who had been there. And that fascinated me. Grandpa had had been wounded twice. He never spoke about it in that classic way. He didn't, well, maybe he told his wife about it, but none of the stories ever came down to us. He didn't talk to my dad, really, hardly at all about what had happened. But we knew that he'd been wounded twice. He came home twice from the war and got patched up and sent out again. And one of the times he was injured... Probably shrapnel, but possibly a bullet, made a a hole in his arm, and he he had this funny circular scar that he called his clock, because of the way it had sort of puckered. The, there were lines radiating off from it, a bit like you know the the markings on a clock face. And so he called that his clock, and it was on his forearm, just sort of between wrist and elbow. And whatever damage it had done, it had it had also severed the tendons connected to his. Ring finger and little finger on his right hand And they were always clenched against the palm of his hand If you didn't know, it looked as if he was holding something there Like a, like a one pence piece or something If you imagine holding a penny in your palm Between your the last two fingers, that's what it looked like And I, I also knew, because I had sat on his lap a couple of times and f- And felt behind his right ear and this might have happened at the same time that his arm was injured but or it could have been a separate incident he had a bit of shrapnel behind his ear under the skin but you could feel it if you ran a finger over the skin you could feel like the, the edge of a bread knife you could feel this serrated edge under the skin and so when I was very small Grandpa was fascinating because not only did he have a bomb fragment in his head <laughs> but his right hand was like the right hand on my action man if you remember the Mark 1 action man his fingers were shaped to fit inside the trigger guard of the little SMLE rifle that he came with, and Grandpa's hand was like that. It was shaped exactly the same way. Uh, so when I was very small, the idea that Grandpa had been a soldier just, you know, preoccupied me because he was a, he was an old man. You know, he was white-haired and bespectacled, and he was he had a, a pot belly, and he so didn't look like a soldier. <laughs> And it meant that whenever I pictured Grandpa in the war I saw Private Godfrey from Dad's army <laughs> which of course was silly because he was 24, 25 or something when he was in the war or when, or when the war started for him uh, but I couldn't picture it and so that was just endlessly fascinating and then when I found out that my mum's dad had he had lied about his age to join the, to join the army he was only about 16 we think when he was born, his mum died giving birth to him. And in that bizarre Victorian way of things, his christening was held with him being baptized over his mother's coffin. Oh my gosh. It's so it's macabre almost, but, but there you go. And then his dad married a second time, and my grandfather never didn't get on with his stepmum. I mean, I don't think it was anything particularly bad. He just wasn't very happy in the house. And we think he took the opportunity at 16 to just leave home and join the army. He joined the Royal Marines. So he was 16 or something when he got to Gallipoli. He was in Gallipoli. He was part of the British attempt on on the Gallipoli landings. He was shot by friendly fire. There was some sort of incident where him and a couple of other men were, were coming through a checkpoint back into a camp and the sentry was drunk, I think that's the way the story goes, and opened fire on them, thinking they were enemy. And the two men with my grandfather were killed. And my, my grandfather was wounded severely. A bullet passed through his right arm, right through his body, and lodged in, in his left arm. And so he was invalided out of the army and back home before he was 18. And the injury that he sustained meant that he was damaged forever. He recovered, but never fully. He tried to volunteer for the Second World War, but he's, the nature of his wound meant that they wouldn't take him. Um, and he died when he was younger than me. I think he was just in his early 50s when he died. And I learned all I learned all about this when I was young as well. And all of it meant that, as I say, the First World War was this fascination for me because it was pretty clear to me that had events worked out slightly differently for either of them or both of them, I would never have been born. <laughs> Because they were being wounded before they had ever met my grandmothers. And if either of them had been killed, then obviously I wouldn't be talking to you now. And so the First World War also taught me something fundamental, which is to say, it's that line from Mervyn Peake, you know, to live at all is miracle enough. And I kind of internalised that thought early on as well. That extends to all of us. The chance of any one of us being here at all is it's vanishingly small. When you piece together all the coincidences that have to happen <laughs> for you to happen, your chances of, of having a glimpse of life in the universe it's, it's, it's infinitesimal. And so all of that seemed to make history very important to understand. I used to think, what else had to happen? And then I thought obviously by extension I must be connected to all periods of history. Because my ancestors were there. You know, I've got ancestors who were Mesolithic hunters. I've got ancestors who were Neolithic farmers. I've got ancestors who were in the British Isles when the Romans splashed ashore. And and on and on through all the events of history, my ancestors, nameless, anonymous now, lost forever, must have witnessed those events, or else I wouldn't be here. And so all I thought, right, in order to have a, even an outside chance of understanding the events that led to me being conceived and then born they must lie in history, that's where all of that comes from for me history's personal and so as I said earlier on, history has to be personal and it is a personal narrative at one level or it is for me, I make no bones about it I'm you know, out of some sort of <laughs> self-obsession I'm interested in history because I know that folded into it, whether I know about them or not, are my people they were there and some of them were witness to remarkable things I can only imagine and and hopefully as we explore this idea this story of the world in a hundred moments that'll begin to make more and more sense you know why I've chosen the moments that I have because ultimately it all comes from a desire to understand this world that I'm in I don't understand how you can you know a lot of people say oh history's boring I can't get that because to me it's if you don't have some sort of understanding of the events that went before you then you live in a perpetual present like a goldfish in a bowl <laughs> or, you, or you exist on one page of a novel in the big book of the world we're all just a couple of lines on a single page and if you only look at that one page then you, don't, you never get to understand the story that you're part of so I, I really struggle to understand how anyone can not be interested in history
1: As a person and historian, I know you love examining the detail, but with this subject, you couldn't really have picked a bigger canvas. Is it daunting taking on the world?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's why I've gone for moments. You know, that's why I've, liked, I've tried to imagine moments, because I'm trying to get from the macro to the micro.
1: So each episode is going to be an actual moment, snapshot in time from the world's history?
0: Yes, I'll, I'll set the context for a significant period of history, a significant event, and in each case I've zoned in on a moment that either we know happened or that simply must have happened because of the nature of the event described. So all the time I'm trying to, rather than be overwhelmed by, say, the First World War or the Russian Revolution or the establishment of the Kingdom of Egypt, I like to get from the macro and then bring it all down to a moment. And I just find it makes it easier to picture events in that way, for me.
1: As well as travelling all over the British Isles, I know you've travelled extensively around the world too. Has that been helpful?
0: Yes, and there's there's a very deliberate attempt. I mean, I I suppose people will will say, how did you pick the moments? It's largely because they seem to me moments that matter. But I did self-consciously want to make sure that I covered the world as far as possible so there are stories in Europe but there are stories in Africa there are stories in Asia there are stories in the Americas there are stories in Australia in order to, to feel justified in calling it a story of the world and it is a story of the world rather than a history I have deliberately tried to make sure that the whole place gets a walk on part at least and
1: when you say the difference between story and history What what do you mean by that?
0: The greatest pleasure I get get from history is learning a story from history and then telling someone in my own words. I've always enjoyed doing that. I like remembering. I like memorising. I like reciting. And so, as I said before, as far as possible, the fantasy is to commit to memory a story of the world. And I'm not grandiose enough to think that I'm writing history I'm telling stories from the history of the world. And to me, there's a, disti- there's a distinction there.
1: Because history is grander.
0: Well, I mean, history, history comes from a Greek word. To us, it means inquiry, really, you know, in- inquiry about the events of the past. But before there was history, before people even endeavoured to do that, people told stories. You can imagine 30,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, a little family or a tribe sitting around a campfire... What, what would they do? What would they do in the evenings? They would tell stories. Someone would tell a story, yeah. because in a world without writing, and we didn't have writing for the, until about five thousand years ago, if the people have learned something important, you know where the where the food is to be found, who have been the the, the significant people in the story of the tribe or the family, you have to keep telling every successive generation who those people are where those places are, what time of year to go there, things to stay away from, foods not to eat, wisdom, the sort of stuff that keeps people alive, the sort of stuff that was learned through painful trial and error, has to be remembered. You have to pass it on. You have to make sure the children learn it, and then the children's children, and the children's children's children. Otherwise, if a, if a generation uh, abdicates its responsibility to pass that information on, it's lost and has to be relearned, which is cumbersome. So, you get around that by telling stories. And, you know, I mean, some of the oldest stories that we know about are the stories, say, in the, in the Old Testament Bible. When you get to things like Adam and Eve, or the creation myth, or Cain and Abel, or Noah and the flood, those stories last through constant retelling. They're older than writing. We don't know how old they are. But eventually there was writing and those stories were, were written down for the first time and then have been continually written down. But before there was writing, there was just storytelling. But when you look at something like those, those stories that we're also familiar with in the Old Testament, clearly generation after generation thought there's important wisdom in here. They're the distillation of learning, experience, distilled down to a very potent essence. And that's why we have them. They've been remembered because they have something within them that's important. And so you have to think, well, why are they important? We should probably look again at those stories because people have been have carefully remembered these stories generation after generation for thousands of years. So pay attention. There's something important there. And, so th- and th- they're not history. The Bible's not history. The Bible is a book of books. That's where we get the word bibliography. You know. It's a collection of stories that come from a time before there was history. That's the tradition that interests me. Stories to remember. Distil it down to something brief that has within it that which, above all else, must be remembered. And for me, that comes down to moments. Just remember the moments... You can't remember the entirety of it. You can't commit the Encyclopedia Britannica or the contents of Wikipedia to memory. It's millions and millions of pages. But what you can endeavour to remember is a set of moments that link, like stepping stones across the marsh, like little lights through the darkness. If you can remember a hundred moments, then that might be enough. A temple dedicated to the goddess of love, beauty and war. The city of Ur in Sumer, Mesopotamia. The first farmers, people working together, great wealth, sophistication, gold and silver and gems, storytelling, words, and the world's first named writer. The birth of civilization. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to build this podcast, please write a review of this week's episode and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucien, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.